Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. In today's episode, we will be talking about the infuriating saga of the Spanish Football Federation's president and his lack of accountability. Also today, we look at a key new research piece about women's scepticism and artificial intelligence. We share an interview with sexual consent activist Chanel Contos, plus The Voice. We are officially six weeks out from the referendum. Thank you for listening. We are recording this episode of The Crux on the 31st of August, 2023. My name is Angela Priestley, joining you from Gadigal land. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-founder and Women's Agenda editor, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler. Hey, Ange. How's it going? Very good. Thank you. So to kick us off, let's go with the wins for this week. What have you got? So my win this week goes to Laura Kane, who became the first woman appointed to a senior executive role in the AFL, which is very exciting and the AFL and particularly the AFLW, you know, I made the point last week, I think have, are doing really interesting things and are very committed from what we can see to, you know, inclusion and, and greater gender equality and representation. And this kind of speaks to that. So Kane has been acting in the role this year until it was announced on Monday that she would take the position on a full-time basis and she will be managing umpiring rules, tribunals, player movement, talent pathways and mental health across the AFL, the men's AFL, the AFLW, the men's VFL and the VFLW. So that's a huge one. And we've seen some really good, you know, appointment wins over the last couple of weeks. Um, We've seen some awesome gains in sport in general. And we also reported on the first female solo match officials to referee a men's NRL game, Belinda Sharp and Casey Badger, who are rewriting history with with that development. So really cool gains in women's sport off the back of the Women's World Cup, which is great to see. And hopefully there will be a lot more. Ange, what is your win? So my win will relate somewhat to the AFLW or to the AFL rather. It will concern Tanya Hosh and I'm going to mm. talk to Tanya Hosh just regarding the voice announcement which happened on Wednesday. So we obviously got the official date as October 14 for the voice referendum and that mm-hmm. was at an event in Adelaide hosted by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese where he announced that date. We kind of knew that date was going to to be it but, you know, it's officially it now and we are now officially in the campaign and we have six weeks. So we're going to see a lot of conversations about obviously this over the next six weeks, a lot more than we have heard previously. Let's hope it's a, a, a positive time, but you know, obviously this carries a lot of risk too. Um, so I did want to talk to um, also an AFL executive, Tanya Hosh, who is an Indigenous woman who highlighted her own personal story at the Adelaide event on Wednesday. And she was just so courageous just getting up there, sharing her health story. She had the lower part of her right leg amputated just over two weeks ago and she only left hospital on Tuesday. And so she had to stand from her wheelchair and she declared at that point, you know, I'm standing here on one leg today. And she used her personal story to share, you know, the the difficulties with the service design of the health system and how she felt let down by that and she could see the potential for a permanent voice to have that in place to really address um, issues Mm -hmm. like that health 
system. So she has type 2 diabetes. She contracted a related disease three years ago and has had six surgeries to try and avoid losing her limb. So, yeah, I just wanted to highlight her courage and her bravery in doing that um, and just to uh, share a thought for all, you know, the Indigenous women who are putting so much into this campaign and and I'm just thinking about how exhausting that is and how difficult also the next six weeks will be. You know, we Mm -hmm. see... So many come out with a lot of optimism and courage and hope and and positivity and willing to answer every question and do every event. But, you know, we also have to reflect and think about what they are facing. Um, And it's not Mm. even behind closed doors or privately because we see it on social media. It's disgusting. We see the racism and the misogyny and it's, I mean, sadly, I mean, I hope we can try and keep a lid on it and keep control on it, but, you know, we are seeing some of the worst of the internet come out and we'll see a lot more. And one thing, I mean, I just read a report today out of the AFR is a lot of the trolling, I mean, it's... It's being boosted out of, uh, you know, it's not even real necessarily. There's so much no. misinformation, but a lot of the trolls are also fake too. So it's just, yeah. you know, to think about how the this conversation is being hijacked. So a win that I just, sorry, I didn't mean to put a dampener on that, but a win about Tanya Hosh, but sorry, Tyler. No, I mean, I think Tanya Hosh's words were so so powerful like such a horrible situation and uh, I can't even imagine what that's been like for her having gone through that but so so powerful so strong so courageous for her to come out and speak on that and speak you know really kind of shed that light on that personal side of it and she made that point you know we can talk about the numbers but we really need to talk about families and communities and how this is actually directly impacting people so I think that that was amazing just on your point around what is not amazing about this campaign and the division that's being incited. And I just wanted to go to Peter Dutton quickly, who gets my Idiot of the Week award this week, mm-hmm. to put it mildly. I feel like there's other words, yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I don't think he's an idiot. I think it's a very uh, strategic play that he's he's done here. Maybe Yes. I mean, look, there are many different words I could use to describe Peter Dutton, but perhaps they are not the best to be used on a podcast. Um, But I wrote a piece this morning and just I think what he did this week in, I guess, shedding apprehension and confusion around the electoral system and the, the way that the referendum ballot paper will be framed and, and tried to argue that it would be a case of of possible gerrymandering is so dark that he would sink to that to that low and I'm I made the point in this piece today just after watching what played out in the US with President Trump claiming his election loss to Biden was rigged I think most responsible politicians in the world are really wary of what that showed us and what could happen off the back of it you know we know that that chaos and carnage that ensued across America after Trump's bullshit and people died during that, you know, that that's a reality. People died because of that coup. And for Dutton to look at that approach and think that a similar tactic could be employed in Australia by him around this and insinuating that there are nefarious tactics being employed by the government ahead of the voice referendum... You know, he's willing Australians to distrust our democracy and he's also willing Australians to take issue with the outcome of The Voice if it passes through. And I think we really need to look at what that 
could cause and what kind of trauma that could cause for First Nations communities who, as you just pointed out, are already being viciously trolled throughout this process and there is already so much damage that's being done and to see that willed into action by our opposition leader is unforgivable. So that is my Peter Dutton rant for the week and, yes, idiot is not the right term. It's not the right term. I mean, yeah, and, you know, we, we've got to think about we, we, we are going to touch on AI today, but one of the, the biggest risks around AI is uh, how it can threaten our democracy. And I think, like, it doesn't actually require AI to threaten democracy, but, like, we've seen what's happened in the US and I feel like we look at that as a cautionary tale and I think we just want to make sure that we are avoiding any kind of any element of that at all or anyone who thinks that there's any kind of potential in uh, similar approaches or, you know, just yeah. laying foundations to ever do anything that could risk uh, democracy. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm so terrified of that and I feel like it's, it's you know, 2024 is going to be really difficult for the US as, you know, it could be 2028, it could continue, democracy is under siege there. And so we really need to do everything possible to ward against that in Australia and I, I would hope and, you know, maybe we're, you know, maybe we're looking too much into this with Peter, but I would hope that our elected officials would, would understand that and would really be doing everything possible to protect against that. And I understand that, you know, that, you know, we're, we're about to have a referendum. It's okay to have the, the you know, different sides to this and, and, and that's fine, but we can keep this as a discussion. It doesn't ever need to go into any kind of uh, suggestions that, you know, there are possible conspiracies occurring or that the Australian Electoral Commission is somehow mm. like positioning the wording on the form to make it, you know, yeah. uh, promote it. Yeah, you know, we, we don't need to go there. Yeah. I mean, it's mm. such bullshit anyway because that process that's been in place, the way that, that that ballot has been framed has been used for two referendums previously in the last 30 years, both led by the coalition. They had nine years in government in which if they really thought that there was any issue with the way that that ballot was being framed they could have changed clearly there isn't anything in fact it's it's a safeguard mechanism that that he's countering so Mm. it's just it's so ridiculous Um, yeah but it is as I said just really dangerous yeah I mean one final point about Peter Dunn is that he's a man of uh you know our national security that's how he usually promotes Mm. himself and one thing I would think is that you would always want to be associating with the side of information over misinformation because we know where a lot of misinformation comes from and I dare say it would be from the uh actors that Peter Dutton would not want to uh be infiltrating into Australia whatsoever so I think Peter Dutton is only concerned with having any kind of modicum of influence at the moment so for the sake of our national security Peter hold it together Um, All right, so look, on to the next story this week and it is going to the ongoing saga of Louis Rubiales, his non-consensual kiss, his very non-consensual kiss with Spanish player Jenny Hermoso following her team's World Cup win. As we mentioned last week and we talked about, Rubiales stole what was likely one of the greatest moments of Hermoso's career and has yet to take accountability for his actions. In fact, he has very specifically doubled down on the fact that he did nothing wrong that it was consensual, even though Hermoso is claiming very clearly that it was not consensual. So I don't actually know what legs Rubiales thinks he has to stand on, but, you know, that's another matter. A few hundred million people saw it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, it's just so, it's, yeah, the, the argument by him is just so strange. But FIFA has suspended him for 90 days as its committee investigates his conduct towards Hermoso. They, they can just watch the video. <laughs> just, just, 
like what's the investigation? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, oh, it might take us 90 days to figure this out. You could also just watch the video. It's about nine seconds. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go on. I know, it is bizarre. Um, there have been calls for Rubiales to resign as well, but he refused. He even went on to scream, I will not resign, I will not resign, I will not resign at a federation meeting. <laughs> Women are, women are the emotional ones here, aren't we? <laughs> oh, my God. If it wasn't so awful, it would be hilarious. Uh, Hermosa, however, however, has issued a powerful statement on the matter and she called out the, the sexism of Rubiales and she declared what she felt, you know, she declared that she felt really vulnerable and, like, she was the victim of an aggression by him. And she also said in a statement, at no time did I consent to the kiss and that I won't tolerate having my word doubted, much less having people investigating things I didn't say. She said she's been facing pressure to share a statement that supports Rubiales and now she faces legal action with the Spanish Football Federation threatening to sue her over lying and defamation. Again, this is just such a bizarre part of it. Like, I mean... What possible kind of grounds do they think that they've got here? The Federation is also threatening to sue 79 female football players who signed a letter refusing to play for Spain as long as Rubiales stayed in the position. Bizarro. Bizarro, Ange. What are your feelings? I have an opinion on this story. <clears throat> okay. I think you've got lots. <laughs> I, have opinion. I feel like it's all there to see. Like we all we can see what it is. So no, but going into you know with Spain going into that World Cup final, I yeah, I think many of us you know you go in and do a bit of background reading on the teams and and you know what I learned at that point was that um, this team has uh, faced you know women really face a difficult time in Spain, um, particularly in football, and we've heard the stories about how controlling some of the administrators have been. And the, uh, the petition that went out against the coach a year ago and the fact that only a tiny number of the women who did sign that petition actually got selected for the World Cup team. And, you know, basically nothing changed from that petition and some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the tactics that were used around controlling this squad. It, it, it's not great reading. And then to see this kind of come at the end of it and to blow up this full world issue, which is putting all eyes on, on Spain. And we've heard it said before that this is Spain's Me Too movement. So mm. what we might see is like possibly something quite positive out of this, uh, out of the Spanish football team, and particularly Jenny's statement and particularly what those players are now doing in calling this out and, you know, not, not letting up one inch on it. What I might say is that Louis, he, I mean, he's still officially head of the Royal Spanish Football Federation. So he's still the boss. <laughs> it's just, you know, they, they've all called for his resignation finally after like applauding him for yelling out emotionally that he will not resign when it was meant to be a press conference when we actually expected him to resign. But, you know, they are now calling for his resignation, but the whole way that it's set up is that like they can't do anything to enforce it. So the only person who can resign is is him. Like so mm. it's just it's it's such a, a mess. And he's increasingly being isolated, which is great. But at the same time he's still He's, he's still president and he's still taking this on. He's still fighting and he's still got his mother out there doing a hunger strike and his supporters out there and and all of this. And we know what happens with these stories because we've seen them in Australia, we've seen them internationally as well, is that these people, they do develop their little fan base and their supporters. And I've seen them come out now on some of the stories that we've published on this mm. that went from really quite people having quite positive reactions, especially to... Um, 
uh, Jenny's statement that she put out on Friday, Saturday, really positive. And all of a sudden it's kind of turned dark and you're seeing all these elements kind of come into these pieces and start commenting and start sharing various opinions on this across social media and the like. So it has shifted. So he's developing his little fan base. He is standing solid there. He's trying, you know, nobody can do anything about him being president. Obviously FIFA have suspended him for 90 days so he can't partake in any like football related activities by FIFA Mm. Um, once again you know the suspension what happens after 90 days are they hoping that this all just disappears I'm pretty sure that's exactly what they're gonna be barracking on you know that's kind of their play on anything regarding gender equity as we've seen as we saw with the equal prize money debate they really just sort of hope oh we're doing something about it in the future it'll happen and it's not they kind of hope it goes away but it won't like this isn't going away, but I do think that we're going. People are really going to take the trenches on both sides of this, and it won't. It it, it gets uglier from here. Yeah, it does. I mean, yeah, the ninety-day investigation is just hilarious and just completely redundant. I don't. <laughs> what are we doing now? Like, what in the investigation? Like, what's happening right now? <laughs> like, no, no. like teams no. of people pouring over the like, what happens? Like, how do but I'm saying, like, I because my partner announced it to me, you know, last weekend and said, oh, you know, this is this is the this is what's happened. You know, he's threatening to sue. They're threatening to sue. Oh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I was like, it's not interesting to see what happens because there is no case there. Like, I mean, there is absolutely nothing that they could say that could argue that it was a consensual kiss. If she's saying it's not consensual and then there are all these players that are saying it's not consensual, we were intimidated, we felt like it was an aggressive act, he is very out of line, he sexually assaulted her. Like I don't understand where there is any kind of grey area. There is no grey area. It is the most clear-cut case I've ever, ever seen. And as you mentioned, millions of people saw it. Millions of people saw it. There is no getting around it. Um, Rubiales can yell all he want, but that is the fact of the matter. But Rubiales, like, he's trying to create the grey area. So he has now sent a video. I've just tried to look up the latest on this whole story. He sent a video of Jenny joking about the kiss with players or something. I'm yet to see the video. So that's what has been described in this headline that I'm just looking at quickly now. So even if that, like, that doesn't change the fact of what happened. Like, it's sort of like, so he's trying to create this great, it's fine because, you know, she, like, made a a smile She smiled. Therefore, she was all good with it and we have this relationship where that's okay. No, that that doesn't mean anything. Like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I know. Let's move on before we both cry. (laughs) Yes, we uh, should move on. But you have an interview this week, Tyler. I do. So, I interviewed the brilliant Chanel Contos, a sexual consent activist who led a campaign in 2021 where she basically pushed a post on Instagram asking young women in her area and within the school um, network that she'd been in whether or not they had experienced sexual assault. And she received a deluge of responses off the back of that. And now off the back of that, she became the founder of Teach Us Consent and her work has evolved from that point on. She's become really quite a leading force and voice in this space. She has now published her new book, Consent Laid Bare, on September 12th. It will be out and I encourage anyone to pick this up and particularly pick it up if you have young men and young women in your lives that you want to engage around these issues. I gave a copy actually to 
well, I gave my my copy uh, to my 12-year-old niece. So I'll have to pick up another one on the 12th of September, but I really wanted her to have it and to engage in the issues that Chanel talks about because I think that it's a game-changing read and really important. So let's move to that. Chanel, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to ask you about the very beginning and the catalyst for starting that Instagram poll in 2021 and asking for stories from young Australian women who had been sexually assaulted. What propelled you to do that? So firstly, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I love women's agenda and what your team does. It's incredible. And God, throwback to throwback to the beginning of the petition feels like a lifetime ago now. So it basically started because me and my friends were at a farm having a few day long sleepover and we started, basically we were gossiping. We started telling stories to each other about things that boys we knew had done. And after a few hours, it became apparent that there was no end to these stories, no end to the sort of things that had been perpetrated by these boys who were now men who were still very much in our lives and our social circles to the point that you know we knew their names or we followed them on Instagram or we had mutuals with them whatever it was and it was extremely distressing and in that conversation I was with close friends so I named the perpetrator who sexually assaulted me when I was 13 years old and it came out in that conversation that he had done the same thing to a friend of mine a year after and I think it's a classic thing with women so often, and they still find this when they research reporting trends and things like that, a, a large reason for wanting to report or act on these sort of things is to prevent it happening to other women rather than focusing on yourself as an individual. And it kind of felt like I had that sort of experience where I felt very disappointed in myself that I hadn't done something that could have potentially protected my friend a year later. But then when I thought about it, I was like, well, how could I have done anything? I didn't even know what consent was. I hadn't even had consent education then. It took me until I did have consent education to understand that an act of sexual intimacy without consent is not an act of sexual intimacy. So, yeah, that's kind of what started it. And then a few other things happened in between. I won't go into too much detail, but stars aligned. And one day I decided in a moment of anger to post on Instagram asking who else feels that they would relate to this sort of experience and yeah 200 people said yes originally and then I called for testimonies and in a few weeks over 6,000 people had sent in testimonies of sexual assault that had happened in the Australian school system mainly peer-on-peer almost all of them were peer-on-peer. Did you ever expect that kind of response rate? God no. (laughs) I obviously knew how prevalent it was. I knew that there were that many people and that doesn't even scrape the surface of the prevalence of sexual violence in Australia. But I was very taken aback and heartwarmed by how many people sent in their stories for the benefit of a future generation. Mm. I want to kind of lead into your new book, which is really exciting and congratulations. What is the mission with it? It's called Consent Laid Bare. So tell us about it. So... <laughs> consent laid bare is obviously a book about consent does what it says on the tin um it's about rape culture it's a feminist book it goes into kind of all these different things I, I kind of describe it as a three-part book the first bit is very educational a lot of it is my master's research kind of relayed in easy to understand terms that anyone from a you know 
a 15 year old girl could pick it up and feel like they learned something or a 15 year old boy ideally and hopefully um but it also I think it's definitely relevant to any there's no kind of limit on the age that this sort of stuff is relevant to whether it's something that you're reflecting on or whether you know you're still sexually active in any way I think the content is very relevant um and then the second part kind of takes a zoom out back and is a bit feminist theory ish and just goes into how these theories relate to rape culture or how they're enacted in our everyday lives and then the third bit tries to address accountability and this idea of informal accountability because the formal the form of formal accountability which is the criminal justice system basically just like blanket doesn't work and the book doesn't go into too much detail about why or anything in that I'm not a lawyer I don't like feel equipped to talk about that I've never been through the criminal justice system myself but it's basically talking about how we can change culture to change this and the mission of the book I like to say is I'm basically hoping to increase the capabilities of young people to be able to engage in consent and that's not just asking for consent I also want to increase the capabilities of people giving consent that goes all the way from you know first sexual encounters to types of sexual acts that I just know so many women do because it's so deeply ingrained in our subconscious to center male pleasure when that's actually not the true types of activity that you know we genuinely like in the bedroom so you know for example whether it's choking or spanking or things like that BDSM has become massively mainstream recently and that all occurs under this umbrella of the idea of consent and I'm trying to be like ooh. Um, when did kink culture become mainstream and how much of this is pressure from men to be able to violate us while they have sex with us? Mm. You mentioned there just earlier about, you know, wanting this to be in the hands of 15-year-old girls, but more importantly, 15-year-old boys. How do you envision your book aiding educators, parents and young adults in these conversations and how, how do we get it in front of them? Well, to get it in front of them, we need to buy it. <laughs> um, but I think the book really will help parents and educators as well because the way it, the tone of the book is, it kind of I'm kind of imagining like how I would, if I had a younger sister, which I don't, but I wish I did, how I would try to explain these concepts to her in a very non-judgmental, shame-free way, but also very explicit and saying what needs to be said. So I think for parents and educators, the book is honestly a tool that you can, if you don't want to have the conversation yourself, you can kind of just like hand it to them. I just very clearly remember being in about year six and getting given a book called Girl Stuff and like all my friends got given it as well. And I remember like pretending not to read it, but obviously reading it and, you know, learning about periods and all these different things. And I'm kind of also hoping this book is a little bit of a parents give to their kids and tell them to read and they pretend that they hate it because they're like oh I don't care I don't want to know but when they pick it up they're like oh this is interesting this is teaching me things these are conversations people don't have with me so I'm keen to learn in my own kind of space and time and I also think it will hopefully give parents and educators a snapshot into what's going on with young people a bit more at the moment because things have evolved so quickly with technology and the internet I sound like an old person being like ah the internet but it is true (laughs) And there's a massive section in the book on sex and technology. And I think parents and educators will find that really interesting because I think a lot of that content and those statistics and that research may be very new to them. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Definitely don't sound like an old person. It is evolving at a very (laughs) rapid rate. 
<laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's so important to look at that intersection of consent and technology and how that's, you know, really kind of changing how consent is being extended into online spaces, I think is a really important thing to be explored. Um, your book does challenge traditional notions of consent and advocate for a more nuanced understanding of it. Could you expand on some of those key concepts and that challenge of the status quo? Yes. So my book advocates for affirmative and enthusiastic consent to be the mainstream. And it has a very like strengths-based approach in the idea of mutual pleasure and true desire being the driver of our sexual activity rather than any form of pressure, whether that's coming from external forces or internal forces or the person in front of you. But I think the nuance in this book comes from quite a detailed analysis on different types of perpetrators and how as a society to treat them differently in terms of understanding prevention and the basically like crux of it to summarize a lot of the first bit of the book is that the vast majority of sexual violence is perpetrated out of entitlement to another's body mainly men feeling entitled to women's body and the majority of sexual violence in Australia is perpetrated out of a disregard for or a misunderstanding of consent and lots of kind of problematic attitudes and expectations around gender and sexuality that we assume of people. And I don't believe the way to prevent or address that is through the criminal system, which I think is why we are seeing this epidemic of rape occur. I think in Australia we have, not only has our criminal system essentially legalised rape due to the low level of convictions that occur, but as a culture, we have normalized it, enabled it, and encouraged it. I think it's really confronting to understand that and to actually sit in that. But I've had to do that quite a lot. And for my mental health, I've had to really like justify and understand how that is the case. And a lot of that does come from the reasons for perpetration again. And taking a lot of comfort in the fact that the vast majority of sexual assault offenders will be unlikely to reoffend if properly held to account or educated, which also means that they're unlikely to ever offend in the first place. Um, there's a type of rapist in the book um, called the entitled opportunist. And uh, again, it says that it doesn't mean entitlement and opportunistic rape. And in my mind, it's almost as if almost any young boy is a potential entitled opportunist because there doesn't have to be anything wrong with you. You don't need to be a sadist. You don't need to be malicious to perpetrate mm. sexual violence. So it's how can we prevent them from ever eventuating? And the answer is through teaching them empathy and education around consent. Yeah. From your perspective, and I might end on this question, but from your perspective, what shifts in societal attitudes and norms are necessary to create a culture of informed and enthusiastic consent? I think one of the biggest things we need to just throw out the window is that women are meant to be passive in sexual encounters and that sex isn't meant to feel good for us or it's not something we do, it's something that we give or like more often get rid of the narrative that it's something that's taken from us and that makes something a trophy for a boy and, you know, embarrassing or, you know, slutty or whatever it is for a girl. I think a lot of it does really come down to that. And I think instead we need to replace that with the narrative around mutual pleasure because, again, if you are focusing on the experience of the person that you are intimate with and caring what that is and making sure that you're valuing that above your own experience, then there's just like no way that anything could ever go wrong. 
I know that a lot of times when I speak to young boys and men, they often air their worries about confusion about this topic, how to engage in it, how to know what's going on, especially when I speak to them about kind of like different trauma responses to sexual violence that can often look like consent to someone who doesn't understand or isn't being caring with the other person. But again, if you are just focused on their happiness and use your kind of basic level of human emotion to read their experience, then then it can't really be misunderstood. Mm. Chanel Contos, thank you so much for joining us today. Consent Laid Bear is available from all bookstores and online on September 12th. Is that right? Yeah. So everyone, everyone should go out and get that. <laughs> and get a copy for whoever else needs to read it. Buy a copy for a boy, please. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is hitting all corners, to be fair. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much, Charlotte. It was so lovely. So again, just to go and pick up that book on the 12th of September, it's out in every good bookstore and online. And thank you to Chanel again for, for chatting with us this week. Okay. And so on to our final story today, which is looking into some interesting research on women's perspectives of artificial intelligence, which is your favorite area, your, your <laughs> it's a topic that Ange has a lot to say about. Visited uh, doomsday uh... <laughs> We may never finish this podcast, in fact. <laughs> so new data from Roy Morgan, which surveyed 1,481 Australians, found 57% of respondents think the future of AI will produce more challenges than it will benefit in Australian society. The survey also found that women were more likely to be sceptical of AI, with 62% agreeing it creates more problems than it solves. Men, on the other hand, only believed that at a 52% rate. Broad concern from the Australian public was found as well with Roy Morgan's survey showing one in five Australians believe the advancement of AI risks human extinction in just 20 years. Actually, Ange, you're looking pretty optimistic here because you said 50, so, you know, there you go. Yeah. You're fine. (laughs) I should should stop calling you Doomsday Priestly and start calling you Optimus. Optimus. Yeah. Yeah. So reasons for the respondents' scepticism, including from the majority of women, were the risk of job losses and the need for greater regulation. Ange, go on, go forth, <laughs> tell us what um, you first feel. First of all, I'm surprised by that one in five figure, but it, it doesn't say that that one in five, you know, believe that the, the world will end in 20 years as a result of AI. It was that there is a risk of human extinction as a result of AI. I mean, arguably, if there are that many people believing that, you there might be a little bit more concern and sort of government input and consideration <laughs> for regulation and stuff like that. But leaving that all aside, uh, the, the women's scepticism stat, you know, women are right to be sceptical of AI because we are not going to win from the male-dominated AI research labs that are currently driving the fast and unstoppable march forward on AI. So if you look at the top leaders on AI globally, they are all male and sure there are some women in the mix, but AI is more dominated by men than your typical tech areas. And just 29% of science research development positions, including AI, are held by women. Where women do start to dominate and have a little bit more, a few more leadership roles is in AI ethics and regulatory bodies and AI safety groups and things like that. So 
all over that side. But in terms of the research labs, where there are a lot of commercial interests in it, that is dominated by men. It's like your typical Silicon Valley stuff. And I, I don't know that, you know, you might hear some characters out there talking about, you know, the need to act, be responsible and to slow down and things like that and how their lab is ethical, whatever. Like at the end of the day, they still have like they've got investment money in those labs and they're still trying to work faster than anyone else. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're still kind of pushing out of the gates with this yeah. technology that doesn't have any kind of doesn't have the level Screen. of regulatory oversight that we should expect yeah. of this sort of game-changing stuff. And I know it all comes down, like, people are talking about job losses, and, like, I think that's the least of the worries, but anyway, but it's, yeah, I agree. you know, it's not just in terms of, like, how out of control stuff could get, but also where, you know, particularly where bias is being embedded because that's what happens if you have one group of people involved in, in research and the development of this stuff. Of course there's going to be bias embedded, and that can't be good. No. I mean, I think it is very messy and I agree with you. I think job losses is the tip of the iceberg in terms of what AI is is causing because you have all of these companies that do just want to create things quickly and they want to do it. They want to be the lead on certain areas and it's like this massive competition basically that there's no scrutiny. Yeah. Yeah. It's a... Yeah. It's a big, big issue. One of the key risks that doesn't seem to necessarily come up in that study is around misinformation, is how AI can be deployed to help in these misinformation campaigns. And that stuff is real and it's happening now. It doesn't need the AI to cross some kind of threshold and like say, oh, yeah, let's go and kill all the humans. We don't need that to happen because we're already damaging stuff ourselves because that AI can easily be deployed. You and I can deploy AI to do this stuff. Like mm. we can easily deploy this stuff to develop campaigns and to and to come up with um, various photos and videos and things like that that make people say things that they're not saying. And so the threat of misinformation is huge and that is you know, a massive threat to, um, I would say, to the referendum, but it is also to every and any election that's upcoming in Australia and the United States and particularly countries that don't have as mm-hmm. strong a democracies as ours. So we've got to kind of consider those risks that are very real and happening mm. right now. And we've got to really hope that Donald Trump doesn't gain traction for the next election. Well, I don't know, I feel like he's kind of he's kind of nabbing that Republican nominee mm. vote. Like, it's like, what mm. do you, I mean, how many times do you have to get arrested before? Oh, nice. oh, no. As a Republican. <laughs> surely, like the Republican Party, like surely there's mm. anyone else. But yeah. that will be, you know, that's, that's obviously another side of it to find out. But I guess that whole thing about there are reasons for us to be sceptical about AI. And I say that as somebody who is fascinated by the stuff and I use, you know, I love ChatGPT. Like, you know, we love this stuff. Obviously, it, there are ways that it can make your lives easier and I do really encourage people to think about that particularly to try and use it where you can and in terms of the job losses I mean it's there has been you know other technological developments through history that have you know created a huge shift and often they end up creating more jobs so that could even be a positive there's huge Mm -hmm. benefits to AI around healthcare and various other pieces that can be like truly transformative but it's it's the uh the lack of oversight and the specific laws addressing AI Mm -hmm. that we, we don't have that in Australia yeah. And it feels like we're a long way off. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. We better wrap up there because I feel like we could really take that AI conversation to new levels. <laughs> so thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast, The Crux. A reminder that you can catch up on all the stories that we've discussed through our daily newsletter that is sent just around lunchtime. You can also check out all the stories that we've 
discussed in some shape or form during this podcast, you can check them out on our website, womensagenda.com.au. Thank you for listening.